Michael McGuckey, you're an Irish Jesuit and you're based in Turkey. When did you go there and why did you go there? Well, I arrived here in January, having visited earlier to check the place out. And the idea is that I would be here to be a, just a member of the community is the basic role. They're hoping to expand the community to invite some younger Jesuits from Asia or Africa to join the mission here. And they thought they would like to have some older man, like I might be the superior eventually, to <coughs> look after the scholastics who would come. That's the main mission. And as well as that, I go on with my own work, which I've been doing for the last while of writing a book. And then I help every week. There's an international mass in English at the Papal Nunciature in the city here. So I, I help with that every week. Was it a culture shock, Michael? Or did you just sit in? I mean, you weren't expecting this when you were asked to go there. No, 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 no not at all. Uh, well, culture shock, no, I've been in stranger places. Like I was in Saudi Arabia for a while and that was more of a challenge. Turkey, I find quite attractive place, very interesting, the history, the story. Uh, you know, going around in the street, you wouldn't know you were anywhere that strange or different, like the people dress in European style. Um, no problem from my point of view, really. Um, what, what is it like being a Christian there? Well, well, people don't know, like there's no obvious, I mean, I don't look, they take that I'm a local, like Turks are sufficiently Western that, and especially, I don't know if you're noticing the little black hat I wear, they think most of them that I'm just a pious Muslim man of a certain age and they'll greet me you know, they presume I'm local. So I don't feel anything about being a Christian. Like, it's different, obviously, like there's so little background and so on, but it's not any pressure at all. Like there's less pressure here than at home. <laughs> if you like, like I feel more of the pressure of the culture in Ireland than I do anything here. And politically things have settled down. There had been demonstrations at the start against um, President Erdogan, but has it settled there now? Well, uh, there's been no upheavals since I came. Uh, I mean, the last big thing was a coup four years ago. And that's all very interesting, the story behind that. But at the moment, there seems to be no tension that's obvious. Like there are people doing some protesting against things he's doing and so on, but nothing too dramatic that I'm aware of. And what about COVID-19? Is that prevalent there? Are people aware of it? What's oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, no, it's pretty much the same as at home. I mean, I was in my language course when it hit, and again, everything just shut down. And being over 65, I was completely housebound for about six weeks or two months. Now I'm free to go out again, but I don't be going out too much anyway. Like the main work I do is in my room in any event, so the COVID-19 didn't cause me any trouble. The people there, are they out of lockdown now? Or? We are, I think you could say that, we are. We all have to keep wearing our masks and so on, but we don't all do it, of course, but it's getting back to normal to some degree. Tell me about the work that you're doing at the moment in terms of writing. You've just finished a piece of work. 
Aha, okay, well, the book that I've just completed, it's called The Charismatic Structure of the Church. Funny title, but its subtitle is Priesthood and Religious Life at Vatican II and Beyond. I started the work on it 12 years ago, just after GC35. John Dardis came home saying there was some tension about the theology of the religious life in Rome during the congregation. He wasn't able to explain too well what he had in mind, so I just said to myself, I... I would like to study what Vatican II had to say about religious life. So I began that, and that has taken a long time. Because the story, there was aspects to it that were quite strange and a surprise to me. So when I'll just tell you what happened at the council or what I discovered and where, we all, where, where I am with all this. The question at the council coming into it about the religious life is, what is the place of religious life? In the church, that's what the charismatic structure means. Is the structure of the church got three parts, clergy, religious, and laity? Yeah, the clergy and the laity is the hierarchical structure. Then you fit in the religious life. The standard kind of view is that the religious life is a separate state constituted by Jesus, by him promulgating the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and that it is a superior state where you can reach a superior holiness and that other people in the church are on a, on a lower level. So that's where the thing began. Like when the council opened, there was a document, a preparatory document on the church. And in that, there was a chapter on religious life, short little chapter on the religious life. It didn't say too much, but basically it was compatible with that understanding of the religious life as a separate superior church state leading to a superior holiness. So there, most of the bishops were opposed to that idea, but the actual argument was led by a couple of what are called factories. There were factories at the council. Factory meaning a group of theologians who would gather together to offer advice to their bishops and write the speeches for them. And there were two factories opposing this understanding of religious life one was the Germans, led by Karl Rahner and a little group of German Jesuits. And the other one was Belgian secular clergy. They formed the two factories that were arguing the case. So Rahner, his main issue was the superiority of the religious life to everybody else in the church. And he was saying that that's not correct that the universal call to holiness is really universal, that everybody on the basis of their baptism in the church is called to the same holiness. So he was making that point at the beginning. The first document, the first draft, didn't have that point, so a slightly amended draft put in, like it wasn't too hard to fix, just to state that the end is the same for every member of the church. So there was a, an agreed second draft, if you like, but at that stage, then, the Belgian secular clergy got involved, and their issue was different. They had that idea as well, but they were more worried about the business of the religious being separate, a separate state which was superior to them, to the clergy, priests, the secular clergy, priests and bishops, that the religious life was claiming to be superior to them, and they resented that strongly. So... I had to find out where that was coming from. It was completely news to me, this tension between the secular and the religious clergy, but I discovered that it goes back to the time of the monks going out into the desert in the fourth century. And it was going on ever since. It was hot in Paris when Francis 
and Dominic, or sorry, when the Dominicans and the Franciscans went into the University of Paris and certain statements of St. Thomas that he made there were important. It was also, there was a pretty bitter row in Belgium just before the council between the secular clergy and the Jesuits in particular. So these Belgians, they had a factory of their own. Two important men called Gustave Thies was, Thies was the theologian and the bishop was Bishop Cheru. So it just so happened that Bishop Cheru was the man who was picked to be in charge of editing the document on the church. He was the overall bishop in charge of that committee that was writing Lumen Gentium. So he did not like this agreed statement at all. He hated it passionately. So there was no way it was going to be presented to the council at all. So they, the Belgians, wrote a completely new draft. And their chapter was no longer on the religious life. Their chapter was on the universal call to holiness. One chapter on the universal call to holiness with a few paragraphs about the evangelical councils and nothing about the religious life at all, really. So that was too much for the religious bishops at the council, of whom there were about six, more than 600. So there was a very strong reaction to this second draft, the official second draft, which was presented to the council. And so another factory, a reacting factory was set up led by two Jesuits who got together with all Jesuit bishops and all the Jesuit theologians except for honor. Of course, he didn't join the team. But they formed another factory against the Belgians on their draft. They called themselves the Bishop's Secretariat. So the two issues were the same holiness and the separate state. And these Jesuits were arguing that the holiness is not the same for everybody. The holiness of the religious is superior, and the state is separate, and it's superior to every other state in the church, including the secular clergy. So, as you can imagine, there was no agreement about that. Most of the bishops were against this religious theory, but there were only four days discussing the matter, and the debate was closed in a hurry, and none of the Jesuit bishops were allowed to speak, because the men running the council, who were mainly from the other side, who would be more like the Belgians and the Germans, figured that they weren't going to listen to these Jesuits talking on the council because what they were going to say was just unacceptable to too many. But anyway, the two men, Molinari and Gumpel, wrote a whole series of speeches, about 20 or more. And so they had their whole theory arguing strenuously that this understanding of the religious life as superior and leading to superior holiness as the teaching of the church. Right. So when it came to actually writing, redacting Lumen Gentium, the final draft of it, mm-hmm. there was no agreement. The thing had to be formulated in such a way that either side could think that their position was the correct one. Okay, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. For instance, as you can imagine, the Belgians had it very strongly emphasized in their version that the holiness is the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. But that had to be taken out. The bishop secretariat, that factory, that couldn't be allowed to be said. Right. So anytime the same was in the thing, it had to be taken out and some other word put in. Right. Then they could not agree about the fact that this was one chapter on the universal call to holiness with the religious life just as part of it. Right. The Jesuit team insisted there had to be two chapters. 
that because the religious life was separate, there had to be a separate chapter for religious life. Right. So I spoke to Gumpel, like he was one of the leaders of the Jesuit thing. And he said that they made it clear that if they didn't get their way, mm -hmm. if the document wasn't satisfactory to them, there would be no Lumen Gentium. The they had enough. Not these two Jesuits. Yes. Made it clear that because they had about six or seven hundred bishops who would vote for them. Yeah. And that was enough to block the document. The so there had to be two chapters. Right. There had to be a separate chapter for religious. Okay. And then also Pope Paul VI got involved. Right. He made a speech supporting the bishop secretariat, uh, the Jesuit side of the thing. So. Paragraph had to be added on the religious life, which was such that it made the position of the bishop secretariat the teaching of the council. Right. So even though not too many people paid too much heed to it, the council did not teach the universal call to holiness. It affirmed the universal invitation to holiness, but the real call is really only for the religious. Right. And that whole superior state, superior holiness thing, took control of the documents of the Roman Magisterium after the Council. Right. Which the, the two men, Molinari and Gumpel, when I spoke to them, they had no doubt in their minds that they won the argument. Right. And their influence is what made all the difference in the documents coming out of Rome. Yes. And it ended up with Vita Consecrata in 1996 or somewhere. Right. Formulating their position, which is now sort of the official teaching of the church. Really? Yes. A lot of people would not know that. They would have thought the official teaching was the universal call to holiness. It's the universal call in a way that even the bishop secretariat can, are happy with. Everybody's invited, but it's only the religious are really obliged and serious about it. Yeah, we're all invited to holiness, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal if we don't bother ourselves about it. What I've given you up to now is the first half of the book, just Grand. the story of what happened at the council. But then the second half of the book, which is much more difficult, is answering what is this about and how can it be and what's wrong with it? Let's go for that. Well, I discovered an interesting man at the back of it was called Pelagius. That was what Pelagius was out to do, was to defend the universal call to holiness. Right. That was his main business. Right. And he said that everybody is bound to holiness in the same way on the basis of the first commandment. Everybody is commanded to love God with their whole heart and soul and mind, and everybody has Jesus' commandment to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So St. Augustine said, no, that it's not possible to be perfect. And the first commandment is not a real commandment at all. And then that view was taken up by St. Thomas, and he accepted as well that the first commandment is not a real commandment at all, that what everybody is obliged to is just to avoid sin. But seeking perfection, loving God with all your heart and soul, is only for the elite. And he developed a theory of the religious life as a holocaust. That is by taking the three vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, that you offer yourself totally to God. This is Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, yes. The theory of the holocaust, that by poverty you give up all your goods, by chastity you give up your bodily life and by obedience you give up your will and that's the holocaust that's giving yourself totally to god and that's the basis of the superiority that's right. it's only people who do that that can reach the fullness of holiness and perfection 
And that was the thesis that all the six supported of the council and is in Lumen Gentium number 42 and has been beautifully formulated in Vita Consecrata. Right. And that's the background to the superiority thing is the Holocaust, that the religious life is a Holocaust and you can only offer this Holocaust by becoming a religious. You can't offer it as a lay person or as an ordinary secular priest or a bishop even. And that's like the second part of my book is one, the first part of it is defending Pelagius that the first commandment is a real commandment and that Augustine was wrong. And two, rebutting Thomas's thesis that the vows of poverty, chastity and obedience are a holocaust. They're not. So, Michael, Vita Consecrata, did you say that was in the 1990s? Yes. So this did have an influence. Oh, of course it did. Well, it took over the Roman thing completely. It's not the only document. There's a set of documents from John Paul II, which are just absolutely beautiful formulation of that theory of the superior state leading to superior holiness. Are you arguing then that this is incorrect? Are you yes, what I've done. That's been the hard part for the last yeah. few years. I have presented arguments that it's wrong. Can you give me some of those arguments you're presenting? To me, it's pretty obvious. Like Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that's a commandment. Just when I take that part of it, Augustine had a wrong idea of perfection. You know, be perfect has been in the Bible from the call of Abraham. God's call to Abraham was walk before me and be perfect. Like being perfect in the Bible doesn't mean being perfect, like being totally sinless, being like Our Lady or Jesus. Like there's only two people who have been totally perfect in the sense that they were completely without any taint of sin. That's Jesus and Mary. Like being perfect means being a serious believer, living the life, doing the best you can. It doesn't mean that you have to be some outstanding person. Like everybody is called to be perfect in a basic sense, especially we as Christians on the basis of our baptism have the gifts that are required. And then the first commandment has been a commandment since Sinai. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. I just argue with Pelagius. That's obviously a bloody commandment. And Augustine and Aquinas are just wrong to say that it's not. That's one thing. Then I'll, I spend time rebutting the St. Thomas's Holocaust theory. That the vow of poverty is not offering your whole all your goods. You don't give up all your goods. Nobody can give up all your goods. I have plenty of goods here, even despite my value of poverty. Like what poverty is, is living a simple life. And the first people called to live that are bishops. So like poverty isn't a totality thing. Poverty means simplicity of life. And Aquinas had it wrong for different reasons. Like he was into dualism of different kinds, Manichaeism and different stuff. Like And two, then the vow of celibacy, I have a long section on that. That isn't the total giving up of your sexual being. You just vow to abstain from sexual intercourse. And there's nothing total about that. That's just one part of a person's life that they put to one side. It's not a total gift of anything. And similarly, obedience, religious obedience, obedience to a religious superior is not total. Total obedience is the obedience that Jesus offered on the cross. And every Christian is called to accepting life as they meet it. You know, like the totality is baptismal, is my argument. Mm -hmm. Every Christian is called to that totality. The Holocaust is not religious, it's baptism. Mm -hmm. So I have a whole thing about that, rebutting Thomas's stuff about the vows, arguing that baptism is the foundation of the Holocaust that every Christian is, is called to.
why do you think Paul VI sided with the orders, the religious orders and the bishops? Well, you see, the problem of the, of the Belgian thing, I mean, I support the Belgians and most of this, but, but they had no idea of our religious life. They had no theory of religious life in their document at all. So that was bad news. Like Paul VI says, like whatever about the universal call to holiness, it cannot undermine the value of religious life. Like religious life was established in the church. There has to be a justification for it. And they had none. Yeah. The only thing he was offered was this Jesuit alternative. So he ran with it. Right. right. And he would have been under pressure. Like those guys, like all the religious superiors, major superiors in Rome were battling this thing. So you can imagine Paul VI was under serious pressure. He had, this was the best available. He didn't know any better. Like in St. Thomas Aquinas, as you say, St. Thomas Aquinas is a bit of a big deal. So this was his theory. Uh, so Paul supported it. And in terms of 2020 and religious orders, where do you see the influence of this teaching is it still prevalent or would you agree that perhaps the spirit has maybe had its way and a lot of people would really just, as I mentioned before, um, have no truck with this and see that, you know, the laity, the religious life, the secular clergy, like we're all baptized Christians who are called to holiness. Yeah, I know. But the problem with, with that is, like this has happened before. Luther argued against this, and he would have no truck with the superiority of the religious orders. But if it ends up that everybody is just, you know, do your own thing, like there's no big deal about this one way or the other, well, to my mind, that's no use. Like the serious thing, everybody has to take on the serious thing for this to work. As you say, you knew nothing about this. Not too many religious are paying too much heed to it either. Like I don't know any other Jesuit besides me who has read Vita Consecrata. Like, none of us is feeling the heat, if you know what I mean. Like, nobody says, this is serious, and I'm really called to this. Uh, but, like, baptism should be like that. Well, I'm back with Pelagius. Like, he was fighting that everybody in the church was bound to this, and they should be taking it seriously. And that, to my mind, is, is the flaw in it. It's not whether what your view is about the universal call or the superior thing, but are you taking the first commandment seriously? And it's not happening. That argument of, of Augustine that it's not really a commandment at all, I'd say that is the more general view. Yeah. So anyhow, I had other chapters in the book that I had to take out about other things that uh, Augustine and Aquinas got wrong. So I'm onto that now, trying to present like what the baptismal call means, like what's involved in it, like that it is a real obligation to be serious. So that everybody, if it's a universal call, well, then it has to be serious for everybody. And I suppose also, Michael, that in fairness, if it is a universal call, nonetheless, it is a universal call that is called to contingently be lived out in different ways. I mean, religious Absolutely. life is not the married life Absolutely. or the single state, and it's, not, it's also not a secular clergy state. No, no, absolutely. It's for everybody, um, everybody according to their capacity, like you're not called to anything more than you're able for. But it's serious for everybody. And the seriousness of it isn't around. The new book that I'm working on now is called The New Law of Christ. Like that Jesus came to bring us a new law, but it's a law. Like he commanded us to love one another as he loves us. 
and we're meant to be serious about it. We're not just meant to pay lip service to it. Them's my sentiments, but I'll do my own thing at the same time. One of the things strikes me listening to all this, Michael, because you're religious, you're in an order yourself, but there is something about people working out for themselves as a group, but as a faith community, what it means in their lives. So I'm, say, a married woman who's now divorced. I am called to holiness. I have to work that out seriously. Um, And that perhaps we can't, and in an informed way. Yes. But you need to be in that state as well to understand it from the inside. So that, like what happened in with the, the clergy at Vatican II and that big split, like sort of as a layperson looking on at that, your jaw just hits the floor and you think, why would you be bothered? Like, why would it, to make it a superior issue, I can really understand it being the thing we're talking about now, that each has to appropriate what that means for their own way of life, secular, religious, or lay, and in inverted mm-hmm. commas, we're all involved in this. Sure, oh no, I agree. I agree, but like the superior thing has been around since the monks went out into the desert in the fourth century. Nothing new, like it's standard, it has been standard all along and still is. And Michael, your gut feeling, I mean, I, I know we can't reduce everything to psychology, but is there, you know, at a basic level here, you know, the envy of somebody seems to be doing something better or harder than us and the reward principle that, oh, the more you give up, the more, you know, everything's based on the next life, like heaven is in the next life, the more you'll get in heaven, but not really looking at you've got to live your Christianity here and now, and the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now. Sure. No, no, I'm, I'm all for that. So, Michael, when will your book be published then? Oh, well, that? that's another question. I sent a draft of it a few months ago to the Revenge, I have to get it censored. It's being censored. Like, I haven't got permission to seek its publication yet. Mm. And then when I, if and when I do, getting it published is another issue. And Michael, what contribution do you think it will make for, would you hope that it would make for people? Who would you see this for? Well, the Pope. I think he has it wrong at the minute. He needs to fix it for a start. The bishops, anybody who's interested should know that this binary approach to the thing is still the official teaching that the universal call to holiness hasn't really been affirmed. The Second Vatican Council was not able to affirm that we're all called to the same holiness. So that should be stated and clearly stated, infallibly. So like the universal call to holiness is not really established in the church, and I think it should be. Like the Second Vatican Council has failed. Like the new Pentecost that John Twenty-Third was looking forward to hasn't happened. Yeah. And I'm going to suggest in this book that this is a key reason why not. That we're That's just not serious enough about holiness, that our baptism demands that we live the Christian life seriously, and not too many people see it that way. And in the letter that Pope Francis wrote... At Exultate. Yeah. Yeah, well, you see, it's okay uh, as far as it goes, but like if you look at paragraph one, it's we're all asked. Yes. That's no good. It's the first commandment. It has to be seen as this is something that your baptism commits you to. I know I'm messing about it. Mm. It's not something you're asked, that you're just baptised and if 
you get the idea and you think it's a good one, seek holiness. But otherwise, it's all right, just avoid sin. Like that has been the way all along. Is that the lady that was always taken that the really serious thing is avoid sin. That's the only time that you're that anything serious is at stake. Whereas holiness is an obligation for every Christian, and they should be serious about it. And until that idea gets like Pelagius lost the argument, but it still has to be made. So I'm making Pelagius's argument that. The first commandment is a real commandment that binds everybody. And until we learn that, the church is never going to get moving. I think it's a key reason why the church is in the state of sin.